The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, February 6th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump acquitted in the eyes of the law, totally exonerated in his own eyes, strode up to a microphone at the East Room of the White House and said these words for history. And you have to understand, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. Ah, thank you for that, Mr. President. He asserted that had he not been elected, bad things would have happened. That. Let me tell you, if we didn't win, the stock market would have crashed. And the market... He described his main antagonist this way. A corrupt politician named Adam Schiff made up my statement to the Ukrainian president. He, brought... he engaged in political analysis and prediction. New Mexico, too, a state that's never been in play for Republicans, is totally in play. Actually, Republicans have won New Mexico in six of the last 12 presidential elections. And Donald Trump then advanced the notion that if you add what are probably mistakes to a transcript, you wind up making it perfectly accurate. Really amazing. But we did everything. We said, what's wrong with it? Well, they didn't add this word or that. It didn't matter. I said, add it. They're probably wrong, but add it. So now everyone agrees that they were perfectly accurate. When you read those... So we added the inaccuracies, and now it's perfect. Okay, I got it. He complimented Jim Jordan's body, or rather, he noted that Jim Jordan had a self-regard for his own body, which is actually something of a psychological insight. And finally, in case we were wondering what regard he held his political opponents in, he clarified and reminded us once again, it is not a high regard. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. All right. With that in mind, I will read from the Washington Post coverage of the aftermath of the last presidential impeachment quote. Bill Clinton emerged from the Oval Office two hours later, that's after impeachment, to tell the nation that he was, quote, profoundly sorry for his actions and that the, quote, great burden they have imposed on the Congress and on the American people. Taking care not to give any hint of vindication, he offered a subdued plea to all Americans, quote, to rededicate ourselves to the work of serving our nation and building our future together. Quote, this can be and this must be a time of reconciliation and renewal for America, he said in his four-sentence Rose Garden statement on an unseasonably warm winter day. That day, by the way, was February 12th, 98. This today is, of course, February 6th, and D.C. had a low of 44 degrees, meaning it is now colder than it was in 1998. It has not warmed since 1998, so it turns out global warming is a hoax, which is just part of the nonstop vindication for our president, who Susan Collins acquitted on the theory that, quote, I believe that the president has learned from this case and that he will be much more cautious in the future. Q-tape. But this is sort of a day of celebration because we went through hell. On the show today, breaking down the Iowa results. You'll thank me. I swear I have an actual answer. You'll appreciate it if you could get through it without poking your eyes out. But first, pronouns don't just create themselves, though when... We create pronouns themselves is, in fact, one that we create. We must learn from each other, though some may have forgotten thy pronouns of yore, 
Pronouns are helpful shorthand in speech and writing, but now they have become a means of self-identification and assertion of identity. There is precedent there to be sure, but also some uncertainty about where we go next. Next up, Professor Emeritus from the University of Illinois, who has written a book about pronouns, Dennis Barron, author of What's Your Pronoun Beyond He and She? Dennis Barron is a professor emeritus of English and linguistics at the University of Illinois. He, and I say he specifically and advisedly, is the author of What's Your Pronoun? Beyond He and She. These days, at least if you look at the Slate Slack channel, a good third of the people will identify themselves. I am a he, I am a him, I am a they. In the world at large, 18% of people say they know someone who uses they as their primary pronoun. But this has a long history that he delves into that I want to quiz him about. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Before this roiled up, was this a focus, any bit of a focus of your scholarship, pronouns? I came upon pronouns quite by accident when I was researching language reform in the 1980s Mm -hmm. and came across a guy who was best known as a hymn writer. Not a they writer? That's my joke. Not a they. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I walked right into that. In 1884, he coined a pronoun, Thon, T-H-O-N. His name was C.C. Converse, and he's best known for writing hymns. But he promoted this gender-neutral, they called it in those days common gender, Mm -hmm. uh, gender-neutral pronoun that would mean he or she, his or her, him or her, and would include both men and women because he said there's basically a word missing in the English language to indicate a human being regardless of their gender. Right. Now, the word he used, the word you used was gender neutral? Was that the phrase? Yeah, that's the word I used yeah. in the 19th and 18th century. They called it common gender. Common gender. Because you yeah. have a list of other f- oh, words yeah. that were used. Bisex, oh, yeah. bisexual, chondrogynous, common sex. There you go. Dual gender, duopersonal, epicene, epicene. I guess person of related to people, gender pronoun, and the list goes on for about 12 more. So there's, this- there's a lot of vocabulary there. There are almost as many terms for it as there are actual coined pronouns to fill in that missing word gap. And we add to it now non-binary because that's, I think, the focus of interest today in people declaring their pronoun as to what's their position in terms of a broader concept of what gender is. Right. So an interesting thing that you also delve into is many languages, every noun has a gender. But it's not really... It's a gender in that that it, word relates to general. What is yeah. it? A dress in French is actually male gendered, I think. Le robe. Yes, that yes, would be male, right? Right, So right. there are many uh, examples of but, this. But it has nothing to do with actual biology right. or chromosomes or sexual expression or anything But it also doesn't like have to do, and there's some research on this, that it doesn't really have to do with the way people think of it or conceptualize it. And cultures without genders in their nouns, like, Turkish, Turkish, Basque, Chinese. Th- right, they're no less sexist. Absolutely than not. Else. That's yeah. right. That's right. There's there's a disconnect between the way the language expresses things and the way the culture deals with issues like sexism, right. like discrimination, like inclusion. The problem is that we tend to think simplistically about linguistic gender and associate it with biology. Even for languages like English that really don't have gender in the noun system, we did in Old English 
but it disappeared. Languages like German, which maintain masculine, feminine, and neuter. Gender just means kind, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it, it was a way of classifying words that took similar endings. And it gradually became associated with biology because you have attempts to explain why is the moon feminine and the sun masculine in in some of these languages and they say well the the moon reflects the sun's light and Uh and that's the that's the role of the woman in the binary of male and female you know this kind of bogus junk science you'd have to to, be a lunatic to believe it yeah you'd have to be a lunatic (laughs) yes yes I'm not used to being the straight person in the conversation, but that's okay. <laughs> that's a pun also, isn't it? <laughs> so, even though it is true that many of these g- supposedly gendered words were not uh, labeled as such or however words are invented to express the idea of biology, the fact that he is written into laws, as you get yes. into, affected life and affected Absolutely. the role of women in society. Even the idea of mankind has an effect. Right. Does he, in a law, mean men and women, or does it mean only men? And far too often, despite the fact that both in England and the U.S. and also in Canada, laws were passed that said masculine words were inclusive, were neutral, were, would include women— the interpretation of the law was basically, if it says he, it just means men. And women could not do yes. certain things, like vote. Women could be punished for a crime if the penal law said he and the woman committed the crime. She gets punished mm-hmm. the same because he is, after well, all, gender neutral. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, we've got to spread it around. But when That's it where com- the inclusivity came absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. But when it comes to a privilege like voting, not so much. Mm-hmm. And the, the resistance, even, even though the law said he means she, he includes she, and suffragists in the later 19th century said, well, you know, if a female criminal can be punished, even though the law just says he... Then if the law for voting says he, we can vote. And the judges and the legislators, all of whom at the time were men, they said, no, 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 I don't think so. So now we are at a place where I think the progressive right-thinking people want to be kind to their fellow human being. They want to be inclusive. They don't want to misgender anyone. Yet it's still, I don't know if minefield overstates it, but there are still complications. If someone says, call me they, my philosophy is, of course, you want to be kind and can call someone they. Mm -hmm. Yet, I also think on a societal level, this has some problems because they is a pronoun with a meaning and the meaning is plural. And if a singular person asks to be called plural, uh, you run into a linguistic problem, a problem that is contrary to what language is used for, a tool to correctly convey a thought. So, (laughs) right? Okay. Yeah, you you want to keep going with that. Yeah. You don't think that's what language is for? No. No. What's language for? Language is for communicating. Yeah, communicating. You know, the idea of correctness is kind of an overlay that there are certain rules that you have to play by. But if you look at, well, let's look at pronouns. Okay. Okay. Look at you. All right. You is a plural pronoun. You in English has always been a plural pronoun. Except in the Starting, South when they have you all, and, and in and Italian yeah. neighborhoods we have yous. Yeah, and and yins in yeah. the Midwest, yeah. where I live but don't come from, uh, yins is the equivalent of that. So in the 17th century, 
more and more people started saying you for singular. Mm -hmm. When the older form thou and thee and thy, those were, those were the correct, to use your word, those were the correct forms. The grammars all said, you know, thou art, but you are. Yeah. You is plural, thou is singular. And the more and more people started using you as a singular. And some people said, hey, that's grammatically incorrect. You is a plural pronoun. You can't do that. But people kept doing it anyway. Right. And today we don't even, you know, we know what thou and thee and thy, oh, that's Shakespeare, that's the Bible, that's, you know, maybe a little Keats and Shelley thrown in, you know, pseudo-romantic poetry, if you want to write that, but everybody says you. Yeah. And the argument, singular they, well, that's ambiguous. Well, singular you is ambiguous too. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to us? And that's why you get disambiguating forms like y'all. And even y'all in the South is sometimes said to a single person to make it clear that that's plural. You'll hear people say, all y'all. Right. And when you fell away as a plural, was it a conscious effort by a small group of people to change it? No. So then it just happened. Right. It happened. Absolutely. Right? It happened. So is this use of they to mean he or she, or to replace the gender specific. Is this just happening? No, it's it's been happening since the 14th century. Mm -hmm. It's been common to see singular they, everyone they, someone they, the writer they, the student they. Since then, in respected authors, carefully edited writers, as well as in common speech. And what we see now, the, the one wrinkle that's a little bit different is when they is applied to a known individual person. Right. Alex likes tomatoes on their burger, but they don't like onions. Right. Okay. So that's what's new. That's that non-binary use of they and some people are latching on to it and saying that's my pronoun yeah. you know call me they well refer to me as they because it's not a pronoun of direct address it's indirect you're referring to the person to somebody else so but here is my it's not a problem i just predict that it won't gain as widespread acceptance in our language as you as a plural has gained that's certainly within your right to make that guess. My guess is that it is evidence of an increasing acceptance of singular they, the fact that it's now being used for known individuals as well as sort of indefinite or members of a class, a single member of a class, the writer, instead of the writer he or the writer she or the writer he or she, you say the writer dot, 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 they. If the person prefers to be called they. But mm -hmm. what about the mass transmogrification of gender-specific pronouns into a they? It's probably already happening. So when you start objecting to it, when you start hearing people say, oh, it's wrong, yeah, uh, it's like resistance is futile. That's a sign uh -huh. that is probably already so well established that there's not much you can do to stop it. So any trend that anyone objects to, the sign is no, that... This particular trend seems to be on an upswing. Yeah. Okay. That's and it could evaporate. 
tomorrow, it, you know, or by the time the planet melts. So when someone says, you know, what I want to do, because I think using he and she, this is what Farhad Manju argued, I think it divides us into gender. Yeah. And there are, there yeah. are pernicious aspects of it. I think we'd be elevating the culture mm-hmm. by only using they. Right, right. But that's wishful thinking. The, the language is not going to change that extremely. Do you think yeah. it would improve the culture? Do you think it would improve know. society and relations were there to be no he or she? Not necessarily. It's not something I, I think about. Who cares what I think about that? I do. You I know, read your you book. Know, I, I care. Yeah, yeah, I care about pronouns. I yeah. care about language. I care about people who want to change language. I am skeptical about their ability to change language. I am too. Yes. and But yeah. I also believe that language does change. Of course it does. And pronouns, even though they are traditionally thought of as a very conservative aspect of language, they don't change a lot. Yeah. One of the newest pronouns that we have in English is the possessive form of it, its, yeah. which does not occur before the 17th century. How, how did they express They either possession? said it unmarked completely, or they used his. Oh, his. How about that? So uh, <laughs> you start seeing it's in Shakespeare. You don't see it in the King James Bible. What's Your Pronoun Beyond He and She is written by Dennis Barron, who identifies himself as he slash him slash his on the book. Thank you for coming in, Dennis. Thank you. And now the spiel. The Iowa caucuses are cooked and the New York Times needle tells us well, told us about 24 hours ago that Pete Buttigieg had the greatest chance, a 95% chance, of acquiring the most state delegate equivalents. And really, aren't state delegate equivalents the reason why democracy was invented in the first place? Who can forget LBJ's signing of the landmark 1965 State Delegate Equivalent Act? And if the public doesn't like your restaurant, you know, they always say, people will just state delegate equivalent with their feet. Or in pop culture, Napoleon Dynamite, state delegate equivalent for Pedro. So not only is state delegate equivalent a weird proxy for who won an electoral contest, so too is the assertion via the needle that it was Pete Buttigieg who won. So who did win Iowa? There are more ways of looking at that than Wallace Stevens had of looking at a blackbird. Wallace Stevens, Dixiecrat, egghead fusion ticket, by the way, it was going nowhere. So in Iowa, they voted. And then they voted again, you know, after a little reorganization in the gym, and they report both of those totals. Then they assign state delegate equivalents based on those totals. Then the state delegate equivalent goes to, or actually it's a state delegate, goes to the state nominating convention, and they give out national delegates. Okay, it's a four-step process. And we have collectively decided that the winner of that four-step process will be whoever is in first in the third of the four steps. Why did we decide this? Because we decided it, meaning that's what we're going with now because that's what we've always gone with. The winner of the Iowa caucus is the candidate who comes out of Iowa with the most delegates to the national convention. Because after all, this is a race for delegates, so that kind of makes sense. Also in the past, we didn't know the other numbers, so that was the number we knew, so that's what we had to go by. Now you could ask, okay, so going by the metric that we have always used, which, by the way, is also the metric that the candidates seem to be basing their campaigns on, okay, doesn't that make some sense? Yes, It does make some sense, which is the best thing you could say about anything concerning a vote in Iowa. I mean, the whole idea of Iowa is that it's an agreed-upon myth. 
And the way they went about pursuing this myth was always complex, baroque, and really nonsensical. But there are other things like this in life. I mean, every year in both leagues, in the major leagues, there's the batting champion. And the batting champion is the guy who had the highest batting average. But batting average was invented 100 years ago. It counts a very major and important part of going up to bat a base on balls. It counts that as if it literally never happened. They just ignore a walk. It pretends an infield single is the same as a home run. It relies on the subjective analysis of some writer for a newspaper who gets to decide if it was a hit or an error. And still, still, with all that, I would say the determination of the batting average leader or the batting champion is a bit more sensible than the Iowa winner because in between the player in the stadium actually swinging a bat and those statistics being conveyed to whoever keeps the statistics, there's no huge breakdown in the system. At least the information is accurately conveyed. That is not going on in Iowa. So to some extent, this system, first the vote, then the realignment, then the state delegate equivalent, then the national equivalent, it's a little like we have a book that was originally written in German, and then it was translated to English, and then it was translated to Walloon, and then it was translated to French, and we decide the Walloon one. The Walloon will be the official version. Now, some of you with a linguistics background might be saying, Mike, that's clever. I know what you're saying, but Walloon is French. No, it's not. It's pretty much French, but it's not exactly French, which is a really good analogy for state delegate equivalents being pretty much, but not exactly correlative to the actual national delegates. So to go back and be a little more simple, the vote happens. Bernie Sanders gets the most votes. We know that now. We know that that also happened the last time around, and the reason we even count and know the number now is because the Bernie Sanders backers were like, we'd like to know the number. It looks good for us, and I say that's a smart move. The numbers were good for Bernie Sanders, and the case that those numbers, which is, you know, how many people showed up, the case that that is pretty much what we talk about in terms of winning an election, it's a good case. Bernie Sanders himself made that case today. Even though the vote tabulations have been extremely slow, We are now at a point with some 97% of the precincts reporting where our campaign is winning the popular initial vote by some 6,000 votes. In other words, some 6,000 more Iowans came out on caucus night to support our candidacy than the candidacy of anyone else. That is a fair, accurate, and well-stated point. It's just not how we traditionally counted winning in Iowa. Nor have we counted the next iteration, which is where you walk around the gym a little bit, and then you realign. Bernie also won that, by the way. No, we count the next step, which for a while was pointing to a Pete Buttigieg win, according to the New York Times needle. And really, guys, the needle, it's more like a cow herder. Although the cow herder does sort right? And the needle just kind of includes, it's very inclusive these days. So it's not really a a needle. It's more like one of those golf ball pickers that are affixed to the cart that trawls the driving range, just sucking them all up. As of 5.15 this afternoon, the needle was reading 54% Sanders, 46% Buttigieg to win the most state delegate equivalents. But, but there is the, uh, there's a balloon to French thing going on here. 
which is that the New York Times actually says that if there is one candidate to win the most national delegates out of Iowa, it's actually going to be Buttigieg, ever so slightly more favorite to do that than Sanders because of, and this gets really complicated, uh, where the delegates come from and apportionment and stuff like that. But, 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 Buttigieg, but, 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 even though it's true that Buttigieg is more likely to get the most delegates than Sanders is to get the most delegates, okay, I'm saying that specifically and advisedly, it is still the case that a more likely outcome than either one of those guys getting the most delegates is that they tie for the most delegates, that they each get 13 national delegates out of this whole thing. And therefore, it is clear to me that what we should be calling Iowa is a tie, a tie between Sanders and Buttigieg. And not a tie because let's just throw your hands up and be Solomon and split the baby. Call it a tie because it's a tie in the number of delegates. If they both have 13 delegates, if that's how it shakes out, then it's a tie. And you know what? Let's be accurate. Elizabeth Warren didn't lose Iowa. She won eight delegates. So Sanders, Buttigieg, they're both 146th of the way to locking up the number of delegates you need to get the nomination. Elizabeth Warren is one 248th of the way. Biden's worse than that. And Klobuchar, should she hold on to her single delegate, is one 1,990th of the way to nomination. That, if these numbers hold, that is accurate. Until the moment it isn't. And that's when they discover another glitch or an unreported satellite caucus or they do a total re-canvas. And then I will stick the New York Times needle directly into my eye doing my best Oedipus impersonation. He did that, by the way, after Thebes refused to change from a primary to a caucus. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the associate producer of The Gist. She is one 18,500th of the way to, uh, to get the Camel Cash money clip. Daniel Schrader, just producer, was on the mound, working his magic, striking everyone out. And then they said, hey, why not walk a guy? Why not hit a guy? Why not give up a home run? And that's when it truly became a perfect game. The gist. While Iowa voting seems weird, it's no weirder than a work in classical Hebrew that was translated to Greek, translated to the Latin Vulgate edition, and then had different works sanctioned and translated into English. I think you know what I'm talking about here the transcript of Donald Trump's press conference today. Umpru dapru dupru, and thanks for listening.